to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 122 today. It's a special one. DMT, the spirit molecule, with Dr. Rick Strassman. Dr. Strassman is currently an American Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. From 1990 to 1995, Dr. Strassman led a U.S. government-approved and funded clinical research team at the University of New Mexico. They studied the effects of NN dimethyltryptamine, a.k.a. DMT, on human subjects in experimental conditions. Dr. Strassman is the president and co-founder of the Cottonwood Research Institute. He is also the author of DMT, the Spirit Molecule, Inner Paths to Outer Space, DMT, the Soul of Prophecy, and his latest book, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. He also co-produced the movie, which many of you I'm sure have seen, DMT, the Spirit Molecule. I have the links below the video so you can go check out his website and also go onto his Amazon page and uh, buy any of the books that you haven't checked out of his already. They're all definitely worth a read. If you are watching this interview on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button. If you are listening to this podcast on an audio platform, please subscribe on there. And um, if you have not already, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive content, interviews, and video. Check out our website at mikeandmauricemindescape.com. And also, we just started a Discord channel. So if you're on Discord, come on over, join our channel. We'd love to chat. So uh, without further ado, we appreciate you all listening. And uh, here is Dr. Rick Strassman. Welcome to Mind Escape. We're honored to have you on. Uh, thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I know we tried this live and it didn't work out, but I'm really glad that we were able to set this up and figure out these technical issues. My first question pertains to your research from 1990 to 1995 that was documented in DMT, the spirit molecule. You were the first person in 20 years that the government uh, allowed to research psychedelic or entheogenic substances. What was it about your research or your pitch to them that helped them allow you to do this, uh, these studies? Um, <clears throat> well, there were probably a couple main things. Um, but, you know, the overarching... Uh, you know, the overarching theme, I believe, that let them uh, consider granting permission and giving us you know, funding, um, you know, were my qualifications. You know, that was, you know, one thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the other was that the study was pretty much, uh, you know, keeping it you know, simple and quite rigorous at the same time. Um, well, so I had already uh, completed one of my first independent clinical research study looking at melatonin. And uh, the reason I looked at melatonin was I was thinking the pineal gland and melatonin were involved somehow in spiritual experience. 
And that didn't turn out to be the case. You know, melatonin turned out to be only sedating. <clears throat> and uh, in the meantime, I learned about DMT, which had been given to humans before and was clearly psychedelic. Uh, so I changed my, uh, you know, research focus, you know, but I had already established, you know, my credentials uh, as a, you know, independent clinical researcher. I'd gotten um, a grant, you know, to do the melatonin work. I had, you know, published papers. Um, I had this, you know, support of the University of New Mexico and the Clinical Research uh, Center. Um, you know, so that was, uh, you know, one thing, you know, the infrastructure and my you know, qualifications as a you know, clinical psychopharmacology researcher. Uh, the other, you know, was the protocol, uh, was the study itself. It, it was ironclad uh, in a lot of ways. <clears throat> uh, I didn't uh, claim to be doing anything you know, psychotherapeutically. Uh, I wasn't looking at anything um, spiritual. It was just, you know, psychopharmacology. Uh, you know, what happens when you give DMT to people, uh, you know, normal volunteers without any expectations other than a careful description of the psychological and biological effects? Were they looking for hard scientific data, let's say maybe how DMT would affect somebody's blood pressure um, or... What were they expecting to get out of this, or what were they expecting from you to produce from these studies? Well, you know, there were a couple of things. You know, one, you know, was to just, you know, prove or establish or, you know, demonstrate you could do clinical research with these, you know, drugs uh, in humans, again, after such a long hiatus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other, or another, um, was that there were a lot of animal data that had been uh, you know, generated in the 20 years since the human arena had closed down. Uh, uh, the, um, you know, there were you know, quite a few animal studies which uh, were continuing apace and had been key in developing our understanding of the, uh, you know, the role of serotonin. Uh, in uh, you know neuroscience, um, the development of you know the SSRI antidepressants, uh, you know, were dependent in a lot of ways on the pharmacology of LSD, which um, had been you know, teased apart in those intervening twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they were interested in confirming or refuting you know the animal data in the human. You know, were the animal data comparable to the human or not? Um, you know, the other things were that, um, you know, people were continuing to use, you know, psychedelics recreationally and with all the new, you know, data out there that had been you know, generated in, um, in lower animals, you know, there was a interest in understanding, you know, the biology of, uh, you know, simple psychedelic, you know, compound like DMT. Mm -hmm. Um, also, you know, before human research, um, had ended, you know, there were some, you know, tantalizing, you know, leads about the role of DMT in, you know, psychosis, uh, because, you know, DMT is you know, produced naturally in the human body. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, you know, quite a bit of interest in, you know, were there abnormalities in the production of DMT in schizophrenics, you know, for example. 
they have run uh, tests on schizophrenics urine, if I'm not mistaken, to prove or disprove uh, that theory. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were comparing levels of DMT uh, between you know normal Zens and you know people you know um, with psychosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were giving DMT to schizophrenics and asking them to compare the you know visions on the drug with their you know normally occurring visions. You know, there was interest in you know blockading the production of DMT or the effects of DMT. Um, you know, somehow. Uh, in an attempt to uh, reduce schizophrenic symptoms. Now, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, mice or rodents with these tests. Uh, Recently on an episode of The Portal, which is Eric Weinstein's podcast, his brother Brett Weinstein, who is an evolutionary biologist, tells the story about how he predicted um, that uh, these rodents or mice from Jack's Labs, which is the lab where most scientists, I I believe, get their... um, their mice from, he predicted that they have extremely long telomeres, which are extensions of chromosomes uh, that are associated with uh, senescence. Now, the reason why this is important is because um, the mice that they were breeding, they were breeding them early, um, so their life uh, cycle was cut short, um, and they had no predators. This caused, I believe, the elongation of the telomeres, so they were extremely long, uh, way longer than a normal field mouse found in the wild. And all that data suggests that a lot of the studies that are done using rodents or mice could be flawed by this process since most labs get their rodents or mice from this Jack's Labs in uh, Maine. So my question to you is, is DMT affected by this? They've done DMT studies with rodents, and does this affect it? Do you think that DMT is correlated with aging or senescence at all? Or, um, uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, the, the point that you raise about, you know, laboratory versus wild animals is key uh, in justifying, you know, doing human studies. You know, that's, you know, why you need, uh, you know, human studies, you know, to either confirm or refute um, um, animal data. Um, Yeah, so, you know, whether or not, you know, DMT extends longevity is an interesting question. Um, You know, there are uh, uh, some data indicating that, you know, DMT reduces the toxicity of hypoxia in the nervous system you know so if you have a low if you have a low level of oxygen you know let's say from a stroke or heart attack Mm -hmm. in the brain you know dmt will reduce the uh brain damage or the nerve damage you know resulting from you know those low levels of oxygen Mm. you know so you might think uh well and you know some you know people yeah there was a Report. I think it was you know just in an Indian you know newspaper, uh, you know from India mm-hmm. uh, about this you know physician um, who had you know concocted this you know formula, this you know cocktail of you know DM, of you know DMT and a number of other <clears throat> you know compounds to give to stroke you know, patients in order to you know resuscitate them or you know reduce the amount of damage. I've never been able to you know, track down any you know, scientific papers, you know, but mm-hmm. it's an interesting you know, concept that the guy you know, probably you know, developed you know, from those animal data um, right. regarding you know, hypoxic damage. Um, 
You know, if you look at ayahuasqueros uh, in Latin America, um, it's in, uh, um, you know they look rather young, uh, yeah. and they drink a lot of ayahuasca uh, <laughs> three times a week, six right. times a week, all day long, all you know, like every day. But it's sometimes. like microdosing um, to and, them, right? Uh, you know, the ayahuasqueros I've been around. They drink a full dose whenever they drink, and they drink, you know, frequently. Uh, you know, so there could be some anti-aging effect. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, go out and you know, recommend if you want to stay young and sure. keep your skin, you know, sh shiny and rosy, you know, to drink ayahuasca regularly. Right. You know, but still, you know, the uh, antioxidant effects, the anti-inflammatory um, effects of you know, psychedelics are being characterized now. Uh, there's a you know, scientist in Vanderbilt, I think, or LSU, I think the LSU Medical School, mm -hmm. um, who's been looking at the anti-inflammatory uh, effects of the you know, psychedelics. You know, so uh, you know, microdosing. I mean, you know, there's information uh, about increased uh, you know, neuroplasticity from you know, low doses mm -hmm. or you know, full doses of you know, psychedelics. You know, that could be you know the way in which they work as antidepressants. And your know, neuroplasticity, you increase the growth of your know, neurons and their extensions. Um, you know that could be you know, potentially beneficial. So we just touched on rodents. Now I want to transition to human beings. Um, and since you did your tests on human beings, uh, I was wondering if there uh, is ever going to be a, um, a way that we can quantify the levels of DMT within somebody's system or can prove how much is being produced or something along those lines, or is technology nowhere near being able to do that? Um, well, you know, concentrations in blood, urine, and spinal fluid in the human are really low, you know, billionths of a gram per milliliter. Uh, so we don't quite have the technology you know, down yet to be able to establish you know, normative you know, values and then compare them to other conditions, either uh, you know, psycho, uh, you know, pathological you know, conditions like psychosis or uh, um, expanded you know, conditions, you know, let's say like meditation. Um, you know, but we are uh, understanding the genetic machinery of DMT synthesis. That's being worked out, um, especially in a in a you know laboratory in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, they're you know looking at the uh, you know genetic regulation of you know the enzymes responsible for DMT synthesis. It's been you know primarily in the rodent, but they've also been you know uh, you know looking at the you know, comparable mechanisms in human postmortem tissue. So. Uh, a few like mid 2019, the fall, maybe September, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the group in Ann Arbor published a, a you know, paper demonstrating, you know, DMT synthesis mm -hmm. in the rodent brain, you know, for the first time. I, you know, so I, I think if we're going to be looking at increases of synthesis of DMT or you know, decrease in you know, synthesis, it isn't going to be by determining the levels of the drug or the compound in the body, but you know more the activation or you know the deactivation of the machinery that makes it. Um, you addressed part of my next question too with uh, the U of M studies, but um, I believe they induced cardiac arrest in the rodents um, and showed that the enzymes were produced in the brain and not just the pineal gland. 
Um, so when you think about near death experiences, um, and I've talked to a lot of people, we've had near death experience experts on our, uh, show before, um, I've interviewed people that have had just near death experiences, just DMT experiences, and then a couple people that have had both. Um, and they say the people that have had both mention that there is some commonality, uh, between them, but they do say that it's not really the same thing. Yeah, um, well, the concentrations of DMT in the brain uh, increased in cardiac arrest in that study. You know, not the enzymes per se. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know the actual concentrations of DMT. Okay. Uh, and interestingly enough, there, uh, you know, the increase in DMT, uh, you know, wasn't any different in animals with or without a pineal gland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you know the Ann Arbor group's original 2013 study which, you know, demonstrated DMT in the pineal probably was more of a reflection of the probe going into the pineal, snagging brain you know, tissue on the way in and out. You know, so it was, you know, brain, you know, DMT, that, uh, which that uh, 2013 you know, paper was demonstrating, you know, not you know, pineal DMT. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you know, to the extent that a non-drug state resembles that brought on by giving DMT, there's got to be you know, some overlap in the, uh, I'm in the biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if you've spoken to people who um, have, you know, both had an NDE um, as well um, as having used DMT, and you know they describe some overlap, uh, you know that is in, in some ways. You know, confirmatory uh, regarding um, a role for DMT in the subjective experience of the NDE. You know, the NDE or you know the death experience is a very complicated thing. Your brain is dying, right? And it's just not going to be DMT that's going through the roof. There's going to be you know, hundreds, if not you know, thousands, of other you know, physiological alterations. Uh, you, you know, so, you know, to say that, you know, DMT elevation causes the NDE is a little too simplistic. Uh, you know, there's, a, you know, like an entourage, a uh, you know, concert of effects. And, you know, to the extent that there are DMT-like effects in the NDE, perhaps um, endogenous elevation um, of DMT is playing a role. Okay, so uh, we've had author and friend of the show, Tom Lane, on quite a few times now, but I believe it was the second time we had him on. Uh, He referenced a study from 2002 where scientists um, were studying the pineal gland, and they found tiny calcite microcrystals in the shape of cubes, hexagons, and cylinders. And he mentions that uh, the scientists also either crushed them or broke them up, and it created some sort of uh, rainbow dust or rainbow, um, you know, cloud or something along those lines. Uh, so I looked up the study, and the study also talks about uh, symmetrical crystal breaking and a possible connection with piezo uh, electricity. Um, and being a musician uh, and having worked on a decent amount of guitars in my day, um, PRS, uh, Paul Reed Smith guitars incorporate uh, piezo electricity. Uh, or piezoelectric pickup systems in their guitars. Um, I was just wondering uh, what you know about this study. Well, I remember that study. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of urban you know, myths about the pineal gland, mm-hmm. right. and I'm responsible 
you know, probably <laughs> for a you know, fair amount of them. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, the pineal gland is curious. You know, people can live normal lives without a pineal gland. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you know, pineal tumors which have to be removed. There's you know, cysts that get too big and have to be removed. There's, you know, uh, strokes that occur around the pineal and destroy it. There's, you know, cancer occupying lesions that destroy the pineal. And, uh, you know, and by and large, those people are relatively normal. It isn't like they don't dream or they hallucinate or have weird, you know, perceptual abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, you know, sometimes you know, since I've, you know, looked into like case, you know, surveys of people without pineal glands. Right. You, know, you know, but you know, the last time I did, you know, the main abnormality is they had problems um, adjusting to transcontinental travel or intercontinental mm-hmm. travel. You know, their melatonin is important right. you know, for the reentrainment of you know circadian rhythms and the remediation of you know jet lag. You know, so they you know didn't respond or uh, you know didn't improve you know their sleep wake cycles as quickly as a you know, pineal, um, um, well, um, as a human, you know, with an intact pineal gland, you know, but otherwise, uh, they're pretty much, you know, normal, you know, so sure. even though I've you know, promoted the, you know, DMT, you know, theory of pineal function, it's yet to be proven. The study also correlates uh, to autoconia, I believe it's pronounced, which are biocrystals, um, that help maintain uh, body balance um, and uh, your sense of, of gravity and acceleration, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so reading that, my mind went to uh, the pineal as possibly some sort of piezoelectric receiver or something along those lines. Um, but, you know, again, I, a lot of this stuff speculation. Um Looking at all the research that's been done since your trials in the early 90s, um, is there anything that you would have changed or something you regret not doing? Or um, is there something that uh, you would have looked at differently? Or do you think about that kind of stuff? Well, you know, there were some you know, things which I would have, you know, liked to have been different. Uh, it was hard to get a good team around me. Um, I'm a good, you know, one man show, but I'm not that great a team, a team player, you know, like I was, you know, captain of the track team in high school. Right. And, uh-huh. and, you know, social director of my freshman college dorm, you know, but, uh, you know, to, you know, you know but, you know, to, um, assemble a mature group of, you know, clinical researchers, you know, nurses, that kind of thing was a little more than I could accomplish at that stage in my life. Uh, and it, you know, wasn't, you know, because of, well, um, um, I mean, it wasn't, you know, completely, you know, you know because of my personality. Uh, I, I think it also had, you know, to do with, you know, the stage of, you know, the science. You know, I came out of the blue with this study. It had been, you know, 20 years you know, since any human research with these, uh, you know, um, with these compounds had taken place. And I had been strategizing with a bunch of colleagues around the country and saying, you know, anybody who breaks open the door, let's get together, let's, you know, form a group. 
but you know, once I actually uh, um, accomplished what everybody was you know, telling me I would you know, never be able to accomplish, you know, nobody wanted to, you know, to join me. Uh, right. Albuquerque was too small. There weren't enough malls. The kids had to finish school, you know, that kind of thing. You know, so I was kind of left you know, holding the ball like, right, right. You know, so uh, I was you know, forced in a way into a you know, psychopharmacological you know, corner. Uh, it was a, um, it you know, was a really great strategy to you know, get things up and running. You know, but I wasn't only interested in looking at the brain response to you know psychedelics and the receptors and whatnot you know that was you know key to establishing the you know validity of getting this research off the ground again mm-hmm. you know, but there were more you know clinical reasons like you know therapy spirituality you know consciousness those kinds of things which you know colleagues would have been you know helpful in being able to expand the scope of the research and as it you know, turned out, you know, without any colleagues, it was just more, you know, psychopharmacology. And I started to, you know, feel like I was, you know, treating my volunteers like large lab rats. Mm-hmm. You know, so I thought, well, I should just get out, you know, while I'm ahead. Uh, and, you know, let's see what the rest of the field can do. So before we get to uh, all the research and stuff having to do with your books, I want to touch on a couple questions that I had regarding uh, DMT and, and stuff people have brought up. Um, recently on London Real, which is a, um, it's like a, a sit down talk show slash podcast kind of a thing on YouTube. Uh, but they had this guest named Montak Chia on who uh, I believe he's from Asia. And he was talking about his teachers and how they teach um, that if you were to sit in complete darkness, for two weeks, your body would naturally start to produce high levels of DMT and um, go into these altered states without any sort of external chemical intervention. Uh, Do you think that there's any truth to that? Well, no, we don't really know that that's the case. Um, You know, if you put an animal in constant darkness, their pineal gland grows Mm -hmm. and they produce more melatonin. Uh, if you put a human in a cave or a you know dark apartment for a couple of weeks, they start to you know, have uh, uh, you know visions mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know mood changes and things like that. But you know whether or not you know those are the result of the pineal producing more DMT or five you methoxy know, DMT, we just don't know. Yeah, I was just curious because uh, there are weird tales. Um, like uh, Da Vinci disappearing into a cave for a long time and then uh, emerging some sort of art, artistic and scientific master. Um, So, you know, I have looked through uh, several different accounts in the ancient times and of people disappearing into caves and somehow coming out with uh, an advanced knowledge of the world or the universe. Uh, But um, my my next question has to do with um, whether there's any validity to DMT being a birth or a death hormone that when we're born and when we die, we release this. Also, there's a myth that's been circulating for a while now uh, where people or some people have mentioned that if you smoke it or you do it, uh, that you permanently reduce or alter the levels of DMT uh, that occur naturally in your body. 
Yeah. Um, well, the you know birth thing uh, is a you know theory I put you know forth in the DMT book, right? Uh, and you know that related to the pineal gland uh, in the beginning, anyway. The you know forty-nine day stage uh, you know theory. You know the pineal gland is first visible in the human embryo at forty-nine days. Mm-hmm. The distinction between uh, you know gonad you know sexual um, you know differentiation occurs at forty-nine days. And, you know, the bardo after one person dies and the soul, you know, reincarnates in a new uh, human body is, you know, 49 days. You know, so I kind of uh, speculated, you know, kind of wild-eyed speculation, to be honest, about, you know, 49 days, the pineal, the life force, the DMT. You know, but DMT, you know, may not even be made in the pineals, you know, so that may turn out to be moot. Um, you know, but also at you know the time of you know birth, you know, uh, you know for the mother anyway, you know birth is a you know, psychedelic process. It's mm-hmm. really wild, and uh, you know the uh, you know the relevance or you know the role of elevated you know DMT in the birth you know, process, um, at least for the mother, um, you know, um, you know, remains to be uh, explicated. Uh, and you know the time of you know, death is, you know, something we spoke about already. Um, you know, whether or not smoking DMT reduces your own production of it, uh, there's no evidence to support that idea. Um, yeah, I don't think any studies in lower animals um, have been done. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, there have been. You know, that would be a study, uh, you know, for the Ann Arbor group. Right. You know, if you infuse an animal with, you know, DMT, does that reduce the activity of the genetic machinery? Uh, but, you know, their, you know, their data is, you know, hot off the press, you know, more or less. Right. You know, sure. So they're expanding their studies, uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot more to be figured out. So now I want to get to your books. Um, and because um, we just got uh, through pretty much all the questions that I had been saving up if I were to ever interview you. Um, so we got through that. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about uh, DMT and the soul of prophecy, um, because I think most people know about uh, DMT, the spirit molecule, and your documentary DMT, the spirit molecule, hosted by Joe Rogan. Actually, uh, by the way, uh, have you ever met Joe Rogan, or do you know Joe Rogan? Yeah, you know, we had coffee at Starbucks in sherman oaks once a long time ago yeah oh. and you know we hit it off well you know who doesn't hit it off with <laughs> with you know joe rogan he's like yeah you know, the you know, well, coolest guy there is yeah you had already uh built up a reputation through your research obviously uh but i think he's done a tremendous job of uh, helping spread the word about uh, your work and others work in the psychedelic field uh over the last 10 years well the first you know time i spoke to joe you know he was at the airport uh, and I said, you know, it's Rick Strassman. He said, hey, man, I'm reading your book. I love your book. Yeah, you know, so he's been really great, you know, for the DMT story. Yeah, well, we definitely love his podcast, and he was uh, one of the catalysts for us starting Mind Escape. So, um, but uh, yeah, so DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, I've read it once, and I've also listened to the Audible version because I do think that there are things that you pick up on Audible um, or listening to a book on tape that you don't get necessarily from reading it. Uh, but I wanted to ask you um, what was going on because in the book you describe 
the prophets uh, of the Old Testament and um, having these visionary experiences, uh, but it's still unclear uh, what exactly was going on. So I was curious, do you think it was from wandering the desert and starvation, inducing some sort of DMT state or lucid dreaming, or what do you think was happening and how do you think they were achieving these states? Well, you know, to the extent that the phenomenology of the prophetic experience, you know, the visions and uh, the voices, Mm -hmm. the out-of-body experience, the intense emotions, the inspiration, uh, you know, to the extent that those descriptions in prophetic figures resemble the phenomenology of giving DMT, it makes uh, um, sense that perhaps elevated levels of DMT in the prophetic state uh, are you know, mediating those you know, similarities in phenomenology. You know, so, you know, what is elevating the endogenous DMT? <clears throat> you know, there's no evidence uh, of, you know, visions and, you know, voices in you know, prophetic figures in the text, you know, taking drugs. There's just none, mm-hmm. you know, zero. Um, so, you know, let's, you know, disabuse any listeners of, you know, that theory. Um, because you've got DMT in your brain already. You know, you don't have to look under every nook and cranny, under every rock, you know, nibble every, you know, fungus and, you know, say, oh, you know, that's what they're doing. Right. You know, that's just not the case. Uh, or at least it's been expunged from the entire Hebrew Bible, which is right. unlikely. Um, uh, you know, why would, would that be done? There are mentions, though, of the uh, tamarisk tree uh, and the acacia, and I know in that region there definitely is peganum uh, harmala, uh, which would be the MAO inhibitor. Uh, So I was just curious if you think that it was possible for them to find that. I know people were probably trying stuff, or do you not think that that was the case? Because acacia and tamarisk are both rich in DMT, it would have been sort of a Middle Eastern ayahuasca analog. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, you know, um, a number of hypotheses um, have been you know, presented, you know, like, you know, perhaps, you know, the burning bush was acacia, mm-hmm. you know, DMT is in a number of acacia species. Uh, you know, peganum is in the Syrian rue, which, you know, grows in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, you know, fungus that contains ergot alkaloids like LSD. Uh, that could you know grow in the desert, um, you know you know cannabis you know cannabis and you know the incense, <clears throat> but uh, it's all pretty oblique, and right. there just aren't any specific references. Uh, you know what their references are are you know God or an angel speaks to the prophet. Mm-hmm. You know so uh, you know you know sometimes you know that's you know the result. <clears throat> of starvation or stress or whatnot, sleep deprivation, but, you know, generally not, you know, generally it's unbidden. Uh, you know, God decides that it's you know, time to relay information to humanity or the community of the Hebrews at that point, or in you know, those you know, circumstances. And, uh, you know, God, um, you know, locates an appropriate candidate, you know, based on their intellectual prowess, their virtuousness, their piety, their standing in the community, the level of their imagination. 
you know, they're being um, articulate, um, which isn't really, you know, the case with, you know, Moses anyway, at least in the beginning. Uh, you know, but still, um, you could look at, you know, the elevated you know, levels of DMT you know, resulting from a you know, top-down influence. You know, God decides and then uh, through what's called emanation or efflux or overflow, you know, there's this you know, divine energy which mm-hmm. contains information from God that stimulates the imagination, which is the location of the visions and the voices. And it contains information that's the intellect of the prophet then extracts and says, I've you know, had a vision, this is what the vision means. And they you know, share it with the, you know, with the populace. You know, the other way that elevated levels of endogenous DMT might occur is you know, from the bottom up, from mm-hmm. starvation or from drugs or from sleep deprivation. In which case, it isn't only the elevated DMT, it's the, it's the, it's the you know, person of the prophet. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, there's a lot of people that smoke a lot of DMT, their brain levels of DMT uh, increase, but you know, they're not prophets and they're not making a major contribution you know, to the larger community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it you know, depends on the you know, person who is pos- experiencing elevated levels of, of endogenous DMT. Uh, so in the you know top down uh, the you know top down model, uh, which is you know the one that I you know, propose in the DMT and the and you know the soul of prophecy, um, it's you know kind of a you know, modern iteration of you know of uh, of uh, you know, medieval you know Neoplatonized Aristotelianism. Uh, you know the emanation, you know, from above, right, overflows into the brain, into it's the almost mind, like a Gnostic it idea in the way. visions, and uh, in a way, yeah, yeah, you know, that's the Neoplatonic part, isn't right. it? The Gnostic uh, influence, yeah, you know, the emanation from the spheres, you know, downward into you know denser, right. denser, uh, you know, forms of existence. Do you think DMT had a huge impact on ancient Jewish mysticism like uh, Merkabah and uh, Kabbalah? Well, you know, Kabbalah, which I don't really, you know, know that much about. I've mostly focused on the Hebrew Bible, you know, the Old Testament. Sure. Uh, you know, Kabbalah is just too complicated. Mm-hmm. It's you know, just too complicated you know, for me. Uh, yeah, you know, the Bible is, you know, plenty. Like, uh, I'll you know, shift my camera a bit and you show you, you know, my bookshelves. Uh, you know, those are all books on the Bible. Damn. Uh, yeah, you know, so, you know, there's, you know, plenty that's been written about the Bible. It's an untappable resource. Um, yeah, but, you know, that being said, uh, you know, the Kabbalists, or at least, you know, some, like, you know, to induce, you know, visions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, you know, to the extent that uh, certain you know, practices induce you know, visions, and to the extent those you know, visions resemble that which occurs, or you know, those which occur when you smoke DMT, you know, there's got to be some you know, biological overlap. You know, perhaps elevated levels of you know, DMT. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, the you know, founder of you know, Hasidism, you know, the Bayal 
um, the Besh, mm-hmm. uh, a you know Polish, you know Jewish mystic, uh, used to smoke the smoking mixture in his pipe and would take flights to heaven, come back after these visions and say, um, I saw Elijah, um, I saw the throne, um, I saw the chariot, you know, the American mm-hmm. uh, you know, so there's been a lot of speculation about, you know, what was, you know, you know, you know, what was that, uh, you know, rabbi smoking back then. Uh, but, uh, still, you know, the you know, vast majority of you know, Hasidics or, you know, Kabbalists, you know, don't, um, you know, take um, outside, you know, substances. You know, there's a, you know, rabbi up in Colorado Springs, Rabbi you know, Baxt, um, who's speculated a lot about the pineal, DMT, and you know, Kabbalah. Um, and I have, uh, you know, spoken with him a number of you know, times about, well, the pineal may not make DMT. And you know, he's got an interesting response. You know, he is, um, you know, he's as much interested in the, uh, you know, Sefi wrote, you know, the you know, chakras in mm-hmm. you know, Kabbalah, you know, that go up and down the spine right. and the shoulders and the hips and whatnot. Yeah, you know, so it's, you know, more of a, you know, like it's almost a spiritual pineal and um, a, uh, you know, metaphysical one, you know, mm-hmm. rather than a, you know, a you know, purely um, you know, biological one. Well, it's pretty clear that you study religion. Are you a religious man yourself or spiritual? How would you describe yourself? Well, um, I was always interested in states, like, you know, states of mind. Uh, but I you know, never really quite connected it, you know, to Judaism. You know, I, I'm Jewish. I was raised Jewish, went you know, to Hebrew school for years after you know, public school. You know, was you know bar mitzvah, you know, but they never really you know talked you know much about God uh, or you know religious experience. Um, it was a you know conservative you know tradition that I was raised in. Well, you know conservative Judaism, um, and uh, we you know mostly you know this was the you know fifties and the sixties, and you know World War you know two was not that far in the past, and Israel's uh, independence was not that far in the past, so there was a lot of emphasis on, you know, the miracle of the resurgence of the Jews and the reestablishment of Israel as their uh, home. You know, so I, you know, really didn't get much of a spiritual hit from you know, Judaism. Um, I, you know, found that in you know Zen Buddhism, um, actually, which I began studying and practicing when I was twenty-two, uh, and. Uh, um, I learned to meditate. I learned about controlling your mind. Um, I you know, learned about states of consciousness. Um, yeah, and you know, then at a certain point, I you know, kind of wanted to return to my you know, Jewish roots. So in my you know, 40s, you know, 44, you know, 45, uh, I returned to studying you know, the text, you know, the Hebrew Bible, you know, because. Uh, of a number of you know, circumstances, uh, yeah, and uh, you can't study you know the Old Testament without having to you know consider God mm-hmm. and angels and you know, prophecy and you know how to live your life and you know, how to pray and uh, those kinds of things. 
you know, so yeah, well, I'm in Gallup, you know, Gallup, you know, New Mexico, there's not many Jews here. There's no temple, you know, you know, there isn't any rabbi, no synagogue. So I'm kind of a congregation of one, mm. you know, so I, you know, mostly study. I, I've always approached things, you know, through books and through, you know, thinking about them. You know, so I've become, you know, kind of an amateur you know, Bible scholar. And I, you know, do some, you know, prayers, you know, like, you know, before and after meals, um, before I go to bed, when I wake up first thing, when things are good, when things are bad, you know, you know but I, uh, I you know, keep things, you know, pretty simple. Uh, I would say that study is my prayer most of the time. Study is my meditation. While we're on the topic of meditation, uh, I meditate a lot. We just created uh, a couple of meditation tracks for our channel so our listeners and viewers can and meditate. Uh, but I have a question. Um, when I'm deep in meditation, whether it's before bed or I either meditate early in the morning or before bed, and I get these strobing lights in my peripheral they're almost like spotlights or strobe lights and they dance around and the deeper i go um the more intense they get and i kind of follow them around but then you can never bring them to your you know the forefront uh do you have any idea what that is or what that could be um i've also talked to other people and they've experienced the same thing so uh again i was just curious if you knew what that phenomena was yeah they're called you know phosphines mm. um form constants uh which are amplified when you take you know psychedelics i think uh responsible uh, you know for the um at least you know the kaleidoscopic display of colors um and perhaps they you know coalesce into the more discrete visions um but um yeah you know they're an activity of the brain uh okay. you know everything is electrochemical uh, in our brain. So uh, there must be some electrochemical things going on that uh, are activating, you know, the visual cortex or the optic, uh, you know, tract. You know, it's, it's interesting, those uh, studies, you know, from Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. you know, the highest concentrations of DMT were in the visual cortex in, in, you know, the rodent. You know, so they're, is you know clearly a relationship between your know, DMT and um you know with the visual system. Yeah, I mean uh we were just talking about angels and sometimes these things flutter around and almost look like they have wings or something like that. Um so it's kind of interesting uh to think about that maybe that could be, you know, the source of some of these things, but um so none of this would be possible without this thing called uh, a trip operon or trip operon and um it's the ancient or primordial source of tryptophan and um i was thinking about it and tryptophan's super essential part of our biochemistry and um it's pretty much how all this stuff you know uh, plays off of each other uh my question is could there be a world where tryptophan doesn't exist and we're still living or we evolved without it and if that's the case um what could what would life be like without that would, would we would we still be the same would we be different i know it's kind of a complex or loaded question but uh, you know what do you think uh well it's kind of loaded but it's you know kind of <laughs> you know, complicated i'm not sure how to answer it really <laughs> okay uh 
well, you know, tryptophan is the you know, dietary you know, precursor for the synthesis of DMT uh, in you know, mammals. And it's also the plant you know, precursor you know, for the you know, production of DMT in plants. And you know, tryptophan is an ancient compound. Its uh, you know, synthesis of DMT from you know, tryptophan is quite simple. Mm-hmm. You, you, you begin with you know, dietary you know, tryptophan. You convert it you know, to tryptamine. Then you add a couple of you know, methyl groups, and you have dimethyltryptamine, you know, DMT. You know, so it's an archaic compound. You know, tryptophan is an archaic compound. You know, DMT is an archaic compound. It's widespread through nature. Uh, you know, fish, sponges, you know, lizards, you know, mammals, reptiles, amphibians. Uh, so yeah, it's widespread through nature. You know, uh, you know, one thing I've well, you know, kind of you know joked about is that uh, you know DMT you know might be you know seen as some kind of uh, spiritual Esperanto. Mm-hmm. It's you know the common language that's you know shared among all organisms you know, which possess it. You know, obviously that's a tough you know theory to even test. You know, let alone prove. But uh, you know, it's an interesting idea, and uh, you know could you know, be responsible you know for the empathy that you feel when you trip. You know, with other uh, you know forms of life, um, you know, which isn't as you know, common when you're looking at a rock, let's say, and you're tripping. You could. I mean, the Buddha nature is in mountains, right, and in rocks. But uh, I think it's a b- bit more, <clears throat> you know, palpable or apprehensible, you know, with living things. <clears throat> you know, so, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the widespread, you know, nature um, of DMT within, you know, uh, you know, living beings as one of the ways to explain that you know, feeling of empathy. Do you know, uh, have we always had the MAO inhibitor or is that something uh, that human beings um, evolved over time? Um, and there's a, a guy that does TED Talk, I think his name's Neil Seth, and he mentions that we're always tripping all the time. Um, and it made me think maybe could there have been a point in, in human history where we didn't evolve the MAO uh, inhibitor yet and we could have been tripping all day or all night? Or what do you think? Well, I mean, it would you know, seem to me you know, that the extremely brief you know, half-life of DMT, which is only just a few minutes, uh, <clears throat> if it was always being produced and always you know, being at a... Well, let me backtrack a bit. Um, you know, the half-life um, of DMT is you know, quite short, and you know that's a result of it being you know, broken down you know, by MAO. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so without MAO, you know, DMT would last longer. You know, so when you have a compound that's broken, that is you know, broken down that quickly, uh, you would speculate that it's uh, a compound which is important for you know, short-term adaptations or, you know, short-term activity. Um, it's produced when it's needed and it's broken down, you know, when it's not, you know, levels stay low. You know, so I've never really, you know, thought about it, but it would you know, seem to me that if uh, that needs to be the case, there needs to be a, you know, homeostatic, you know, mechanism, you know, regulating the production and circulation of DMT, mm-hmm. you know, you know, that the MAO enzyme would need to have evolved 
at the same time as mm. the evolution of you know, DMT, you know, you know, to kind of keep it in balance. Okay, so now I want to get to some questions from uh, friends of the show and some of our patrons. And um, uh, Dick Kahn, who is the author of DMT in My Occult Mind and DMT in My Occult Mind uh, Part 2 he just released, um, he wanted to know, what do you believe your greatest contribution to science is based on your experiments in the uh, 90s? Well, I think, you know, from the point of view of, you know, science, uh, strictly defined, uh, I mean, our work reopened the door to clinical research mm-hmm. in uh, the U.S., you know, so, uh, yeah. you know, scientifically, our study was quite, you know, simple. You know, uh, you give the drug, uh, you measure outcomes, biological, mm-hmm. psychological, autonomic, um, and, uh, you know, that's that. Uh, but, um, well, you know, that's not um, entirely true. Uh, let me maybe qualify that. Um, you know, there's a push to call these drugs entheogens. They activate the divine within. Or they're, you know, psychotomimetics. They make you psychotic, at least, you know, temporarily. You know, so what do these drugs do? Or, you know, you know what is their inherent, you know, nature? <clears throat> and I think you know, that our study, from the scientific point of view, uh, you know, basically, you know, said they are, you know, psychedelic drugs. Mm. They're mind manifesting, they're mind disclosing. Uh, So uh, in our volunteers, you know, they were normal volunteers. Uh, They didn't know much about, you know, DMT, if anything. You know, this was in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, said to people, you know, have your trip. You know, the drug is fast. It's short. You may feel like you've left your body. Don't worry. You know, we're here to, you know, provide the anchor. You know, but otherwise, just have your trip. Keep your wits about you. Try to remember everything you can and report you know, back to us. Mm. You know, so people had their own trips. We weren't, you know, telling them. Or we weren't you know, preparing them with you know ten hours or you know twelve hours of you know psychotherapy, saying these drugs are mystical, mimetic, and you'll see God and you'll become one with the universe. Right. Or we didn't say these you know drugs are you know madness occasioning. You know they're going to make you mad temporarily. We just said this is a strong drug which is rather visual and short and intense. Uh, yeah, and you know. Um, People had the kind of trip that they wanted or they needed or they wished for. For, for example, um, only one volunteer you know, had what you would call a classic NDE. And you know, that was a nurse who her whole life wanted to have an NDE. She'd studied it. She'd read about it. She'd gone to groups. She'd gone to workshops. And you know, she you know, had an NDE. There was one person with a you know, bona fide mystical experience. This person was a religious studies major in college who always wanted to have mystical experience. Mm. You know, there was one you know shamanic dismemberment, you know, death rebirth experience in an urban shaman who didn't expect to have that kind of a trip until he died or mm. was much older. You know, so with no you know preparation other than you know hold on to your hats, we'll be looking after you. You, you know, people experienced the kind of trip that they already were primed for. Mm. You know, so I think 
you know, that's an important thing to consider when you're looking at the you know, panacea-like effect of you know, psychedelics in this current wave of research. You know, they help everything. They help wife, uh, spouse abuse, you know, prisoner recidivism. They make you more open. They make you more mindful in your meditation, depression, addiction, OCD, you know, terminal illness. You name it. Uh, you know, they do it. You know, so, you know, what does that mean? Or, you know, what does that indicate? I think it indicates a super activation of the placebo effect. You know, because if you look at how Charles Manson gave LSD to his volunteers or his you know, followers, you know, he, you know, collected a group of, you know, poorly, you know, formed, you know, psychopaths. Sure. You know, they were kind of, you know, vague psychopaths. Uh, and he gave them LSD. He prepared them. He, you know, told them what was going on, and they became, you know, dedicated psychopaths, completely mm. committed to this bizarre cause. Right. You know, so you can give LSD to people, and they become, you know, serial killers. You can become, or you can give LSD to people, and they become, you know, meditative geniuses. You know, so it all depends on who and what the drug is working on, which, 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 in in a way, is a reflection of. Uh, activating the innate you know, healing or you know, growth mechanisms in the mind-body complex, you know. So, you know, that's the hallmark of you know the placebo, is it activates the inherent healing mechanisms in the mind and sure. the body unconsciously in a very strange way, you know. So, I think other than me opening up the you know regulatory you know door to being able to do clinical studies in you know the U.S. You know, plus establishing that the drugs are neutral in their inherent properties. It just depends on, you know, who you're giving the drugs to. I think, you know, you know, the largest contribution I might be able to make is to consider or to think of you know, psychedelics as being unparalleled tools to understand the placebo effect. Mm. Um, it you know, could be all these brain changes that we see are just reflections of the placebo effect being activated, which can be turned to improved functioning, less drug abuse, less depression, you know, better meditation. Mm. Uh, you know, so I don't think these, um, I don't think that, you know, psychedelics stop addiction because they're, ant you know, because they you know, possess some kind of anti-addiction characteristics, but they activate the placebo response, which then cures the addiction in a real objective way. It amplifies uh, what you want it to. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the placebo response is the most amazing, you know, thing, you know, within, you, uh, you know, the medical world. Your psychotherapy mm. could be considered a placebo. You know, so I think that, you know, psychedelics, you know, might be the key to, uh, un to understanding, you know, the placebo response. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned a shamanic experience that uh, that person had, um, and another friend of the show uh, and author, Aaron Voot, uh, author of Spirit in the Sky, um, made correlations between uh, the myth of Osiris, uh, correlating it to Orion, um, and also... It, you know, you look at what a shamanic experience is, you know, people are dismembered and taken to the underworld and then put back together. Um, and, you know, you look at the myth of uh, Osiris and he's dismembered, taken to the underworld. And then I believe Thoth and um, Isis uh, 
piece them back together, um, if I'm not mistaken. And we know the ancient Egyptians had blue lotus with the active ingredient aporphine, but it's not the same thing as uh, DMT. But based on your research with uh, DMT and the soul of prophecy, if that was going on um, then during the times of the Old Testament, do you think that that's possible that those experiences were going on in ancient Egypt? And if so, do you think there's any correlation there? Yeah, well, that's an important question, um, you know, because it bespeaks, you know, the content of the visionary state. And you can look at, you know, the phenomenology, you know, like there are, you know, colors and there are shapes and there are emotions. Uh, you know, thinking is altered. Uh, you hear things, you see things, you know, you know, you know, but you know, the content, you know, the information, uh, the, you know, forms that the content of the trip, you know, takes are, you know, dependent on the culture, on the personality, on the prevailing religious uh, ideas that permeate the culture. You know, so I would imagine that people in Egypt, ancient Egypt, you know, had certain ideas uh, which were then made that much more real through their visions. Like they may think, oh, I wonder if the uh, you know, sun has got intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, they've already been you know, thinking about that. And they trip for whatever reason. They take a blue lotus or they uh, use uh, uh, you know, psychedelic or their brain levels of DMT increase from starving or sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. And they flash on the sun is intelligent the sun you know does have intelligence i see it i feel it i i understand it you know so it's a making more you know real what they were thinking about or speculating about um and you know that is dependent on what you know they were already thinking and speculating about it isn't inherent in you know the substance itself Mm. um you know it kind of speaks to that placebo thing you were obviously describing it confirms mm. you know, previous beliefs, either more or less conscious. You know, you have to you know take into account the existence of you know the unconscious, which is you know Freud's great discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't like an agnostic person or uh, you know like an atheist. You know, person takes you know psilocybin, becomes a believer in God just out of the blue. Right. Those were already percolating in the back of their mind and the drug just kind of you know shown a spotlight on it and they said oh i guess i was wrong you know you know but that's not you know changing your mind that's just becoming more aware of what you weren't quite aware of in the first place you know that's why you know michael pollan's book kind of drives me crazy changing your mind it's not changing your mind at all it's just making you more aware of us what's you know what's already there Sure. Yeah. Uh, some of the stuff in his book kind of aggravated me too. And, uh, I think speaks to his lack of experience, uh, with these substances and there's not much, um, in regards to the ancient or indigenous use uh, of these substances. Um, so I want to touch on one more thing cause I know we're running low on time here, but, um, we've had your colleague on Dr. Andrew Gallimore, uh, who's the author of the book Alien Information Theory? Great book, highly recommended. If you didn't listen to our episode with him, please go check it out. Uh, but uh, 
when you look at the experiment of putting somebody in the DMT state uh, for 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, however long it may be, um, what do you think, is there too far or do you think it just depends on the person's mindset uh, going into it or what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it would, you know, it would obviously depend on the person, you know, the doses and, you know, why they were participating in that uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe some, you know, background, you know, to that, you know, to that model. Uh, you know, we did a study uh, which was, uh, um, it, it, you know, was to determine if, you know, tolerance develops to repeated dosing of DMT. Um, if you give LSD or you take LSD every day for a few days, you stop responding. You develop tolerance, and that's right. the case with mushrooms and mescaline and other psychedelics. You know, but that had you know never been established you know, with DMT, um, even giving it in in you know cats every you know two hours for three weeks, they still responded to the last dose as much as they did to the first one. Mm. And so I thought, well, you just have to space the doses closer together. You know, so we gave, you know, DMT a big dose every half hour, you know, four times mm-hmm. and there was no tolerance. So it, it was, um, it was also interesting in that, you know, people did, you know, therapeutic work in that you know, protocol, even, you know, though they weren't depressed or didn't come in with problems. Right. You know, you go through a lot when you take four doses of DMT in like you know, two hours, um, you know, so, you know, toward the end of my you know, DMT book, um, I, you know, suggest well, if there is no tolerance to repeated dosing, you could infuse it uh, over the space of a number of hours. And, uh, you know, you would do that, you know, for a couple of reasons. You know, one is you would be able to characterize the DMT state better. Um, when you inject or smoke DMT, it's over, you know, before you get your bearings most of the time. Mm. You hold on, whoa, and uh, you get your bearings and then you start coming down. You know, so, you know, so the communication with, with the beings is, you know, kind of, you know, time limited, kind of rushed, mm-hmm. uh, a, you know, really, you know, fulsome ex- exploration of the state isn't really you know, possible. You know, so if you can, you know, prolong the state, uh, you could, you know, get a handle on it better. You know, like, you know, for example, y- you could tinker with, you know, the objects in there. Y- you could take a hammer, you know, maybe, and, you know, right. you know one of these globes or mountains or rocks or jewels and you know what happens if you if you tap it with a hammer does it spark does the hammer go through it you know you know what exactly is you know the nature of our the world implodes contents. if you do that um, yeah. <laughs> and you could uh interact you know with the beings in a more leisurely manner you could establish more you know facile channels of communication you know, one of the frequent complaints of my volunteers was that the, you know, the, you know that the, you know, language was was a problem, a shared language between the beings and the volunteer. They couldn't quite hear each other, understand each other. You know, gestures weren't that clear. Um, you know, so you could establish a more enduring relationship, you know, with the beings in those in those states. Um, you. Know, um, so the other thing I think that would be you know, valuable with a continuous infusion model like that is, uh, you know, for a you know, therapeutic tool, you know, let's say you've got a you know, psychological you know, problem, you're depressed, you're traumatized, uh, you can titrate the effect 
you can start off with a, you know with a slow infusion rate uh, and uh, they could work on stuff to the point that they're comfortable you know then they could um, either request the infusion stop or you want to stop it um, uh, um, you know you know like as you know the clinician right uh, and spend some time you know processing what they just went through and then you'd say well you want to go back you want to go deeper you want to not go as deep this time and you know go in and out you know titrate the amount of intensity that they're able to and willing to endure um and i think you could make a lot of you know progress you know you know when you take lsd or you know psilocybin in one of these you know, psychotherapy studies you're committed once you swallow the pill mm. oh, yeah. uh, but you're not quite you know so committed if you can you know turn it off and it resolves in 15 minutes you know so you can go in and out in and out in and out right um you know one other you know possibility is it's a long way to mars three years right or three months i can't remember but it's you know, three, three something of, it's yeah. a long time uh and yeah and you know what are you going to do for those three years you know so uh I mean, why not keep you know somebody in a prolonged you know DMT state for as you know long as it's healthy and you know safe? So sure, you know the time would pass by rather quickly. I know when we were talking to him, he was getting ready to to do the prolonged uh, intravenous uh, experiment. Has he done that yet? Do you know? Well, there's a group at Imperial College that's working on it right now. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure exactly you know where they're at. I was consulting early on. Uh, they're you know working on the infusion rate, you know mathematical models, you know for the amount you give it first, you know then you know the rate after you've peaked. Um, you know, like all human research is pretty much you know ground to a halt in the whole you know world with everything, yeah, you know, exactly. not only psychedelics. You know, so I think you know they're taking a pause. Uh, but still, uh, you know, they were, you know, working on it, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, there's a group in Stockholm that's working on the, you know, mathematics of it. Uh, yeah, you know, so it's going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when, though. Well, I've mentioned it many times on the show before, but I have clinical OCD and, uh, I've had really good experiences with macro doses of psilocybin, uh, mixed with CBT therapy, uh, which has helped me keep it at a nominal level. I've even been, I've been able to use the OCD to my advantage. Uh, but um, I'm formally uh, offering my services as a test subject. If uh, anybody wants to throw me in that experiment, I'm down. Um, so what's your experience been with the DMT entities? Or have you had any interactions? Or um, have you experienced them? And if so, uh, what do you think they are or what do you think's going on there? Well, you know, early on, I would, you know, tell people, I'm not going to you know, say whether or not I've used DMT because if I you know, say that I have, I'll be accused of you know, being a zealot. And okay. if I, you know, say you know, that I haven't, I'll be accused of not knowing what I'm talking about. You know, but, you know, last year I, I you know, did a gig with, uh, you know, Graham Hancock. I'm in Sedona. And, uh, you know, I finished that study 25 years ago, so mm -hmm. I figure, well, you know, I can let the cat out of the bag. So <laughs> I described my first DMT experience with, you know, Terrence McKenna, you know, back in, you know, 1986. Yeah, and it, it was an encounter with the beings. I was absolutely floored. Um, yeah, and, uh, 
you know, they emerged out of a flaming waterfall of, you know, raging color. Uh, there are about a half a dozen of them, you know, three to you know, four feet you know, tall. You know, they just, you know, kind of emerged out of this waterfall and uh, they chirped or, you know, lilted or, you know, whatever, you know, telepathically uh, spoke to me saying, you know, now do you see, now do you see, now do you see? And, uh, you know, that went on for a few minutes. And uh, I came down and uh, decided to study DMT. Mm. So since your research in the early 90s and all the research that's gone on since uh, that everybody else has done, do you think that there's more of a mystical or mystery surrounding this this topic or DMT uh, or less uh, mystery? Do you think maybe you sucked the mystery out of it by doing it or uh, maybe it lost a little bit of its mysticism? Um, or, you know... How do you feel about that? Well, you know, the chemistry and, you know, the electricity is, you know, not especially, you know, uh, you know complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, like an engineering, you know, uh, uh, you know, problem. You'll be able to, you know, figure out the wiring right. and, you know, the chemistry. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can, uh, you know, fine, you know, tune your understanding, obviously. To more and more, um, you know, precise levels, uh, you know, degrees of resolution, uh, you know. But after a, a certain point, I mean, you know, what's the point? You could get down to the, you know, quantum level, I guess. Right. You know, but uh, you know, the reason that I moved, you know, more to the spiritual or you know the religious questions raised by the DMT effect, um is because of, you know, the information content, uh, which I think is much more important than the electricity and the chemistry. You know, what can you learn in these states? Uh, what uh, can you bring you know, back from them that makes both you and your, you know, society a better place? Um, you know, so that's not, not going to be answered by the chemists and the electricians. It'll be answered by the people who uh, have got the intellectual, the moral, the uh, you know virtue, the uh, intelligence, uh, you know the imagination to extract information from those states and relay it, you know, to the larger uh, you know community. Yeah, the uh, philosopher kings, if you will. Uh, but yeah, I just want to wrap it up here. But uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all the work you've done and the research and, um, you know, putting it down on, on paper and writing the books and everything. So we really appreciate that. Uh, we really appreciate the uh, movie as well. Uh, but um, the other aspect of it is you're, you know, you have an open mind and it seems like uh, life's full of mysteries. And if we had more scientists that were open to a little bit more of that, uh, maybe we could get a little bit further in, in some of these categories. But, uh, um, but yeah, again, thank you for coming on and uh, thank you for all the work that you've done. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Well, sure. You're both welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed the line of questioning. You know, one thing I'd like to, you know, pitch is my novel, which came out last year, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a change of pace, but you can tell I wrote it. Uh, yeah, it's semi-autobiographical. It's about a, a guy in a small. Uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much semi-autobiographical. You know, with an emphasis on autobiographical and a you know de-emphasis on you know semi. 
Mm. You know, but it, it's about a you know character in a sm- small southwest town who becomes ill with a couple of you know serious infections and spends a year recovering. And um, yeah, it's it's you know medical humor, you know psychologically mm-hmm. rather you know dark, but uh, most people you know laugh uh, when they're when you know they're reading it. It's you know currently being uh, converted in. I'm into an audible book. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a narrator I've been working with and we're you know, closing in on you know, finishing it. So it'll be an audible book probably within the next few weeks as well. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I haven't read it yet, but I have it loaded up and ready to go. And uh, we're going to have all the links to all your stuff down below the video. Uh, you know, if people, if you haven't checked out uh, DMT in the spirit molecule, definitely check that out, read the book, watch the documentary. Um, if you haven't, uh, read DMT and the soul of prophecy, check that out for sure. And, uh, obviously his new one, um, Joseph Levy. So, uh, but again, we will have all the links down below. Uh, everybody stay safe out there and, um, we will definitely have you back on in the future. Uh, after I, uh, develop another 10 to 12 interesting questions, but, uh, thank you again for so much. Uh, of the work that you've done, and uh, we look forward to anything you do in the future. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Be safe. You too. You too. Peace. I want to thank you all for watching and listening. Uh, I again, I have all the links to Dr. Strassman's book and website and everything down below. Uh, I also have the links to our Patreon and uh, website down below. Please check those out. Again, we are also on Discord now, so if you're active on Discord, please join our channel. Everyone stay safe and healthy and um, stay tuned.